Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Blackstone Second Quarter 2022 Investor Call, hosted by Weston Tucker, Head of Shareholder Relations. My name is Ben, and I'm your event manager. During the presentation, your lines remain on listen only. If you require assistance at any time, please press star zero on your device, and the coordinator will be happy to assist you. If you wish to ask a question throughout the conference, please press star one on your device. Please only present one question at a time and then press star one again for any follow-ups so everyone can get an opportunity to participate. Thank you. Like the all parties, but this conference is being recorded. And now I would like to hand it over to your host. Bestin, the word is yours. Terrific, thanks Ben and good morning and welcome to Blackstone's second quarter conference call. Joining today are Steve Schwarzman, Chairman and CEO, John Gray, President and Chief Operating Officer, and Michael Che, Chief Financial Officer. Earlier this morning, we issued a press release and slide presentation, which are available on our website. We expect to file our 10Q report in a few weeks. I'd like to remind you that today's call may include forward-looking statements, which are uncertain and outside of the firm's control and may differ from actual results materially. We do not undertake any duty to update these statements, and for a discussion of some of the risks that could affect results, please see the risk factors section of our 10K. We'll also refer to non-GAAP measures and you'll find reconciliations in the press release on the shareholders page of our website. Also note that nothing on this call constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase an interest in any Blackstone fund. This audio cast is copyrighted material of Blackstone and may not be duplicated without consent. On results, we reported a GAAP net loss for the quarter of $256 million. Distributable earnings were $2 billion or $1.49 per common share, and we declared a dividend of $1.27 per share paid to holders of record as of August 1st. With that, I'll turn the call over to Steve. Thanks a lot, Weston. Good morning, and thank you for joining our call. As you know, the second quarter and the first half of 22 represented some of the worst periods for market performance in history. Investors were anticipating extremely high levels of inflation, rising interest rates, and a slowing economy. The S&P fell 16% in the quarter and 20% in the first six months of the year, the largest first half decline for U.S. equities in over 50 years. Debt markets experienced their largest decline on record. Taken together, the typical 60-40 portfolio produced its worst return since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Capital markets activity, of course, slowed dramatically, including U.S. IPOs down over 90% year-on-year, and commodity prices soared that now appear to be backing off from their highest levels. Despite these hostile conditions, Blackstone again delivered outstanding results for our investors. Distributable earnings in Q2 nearly doubled year over year to $2 billion, one of the two best quarters in our history, driven by a 40% growth in fee-related earnings and record realizations. We raised a remarkable $88 billion of inflows. That's $88 billion of inflows in a quarter in the midst of the market chaos, our second highest quarter ever. 
and equal, ironically, to Blackstone's total AUM at the time of our IPO in 2007. For the past 12 months, inflows reached $340 billion, driving a 38% increase in AUM to a record setting for us, $941 billion. We are about midway through the largest fundraising cycle in our history with enormous support from our limited partners, providing us with an unprecedented $170 billion of dry powder capital. And over the next several years, we expect historically attractive investment opportunities to arise from this dislocation. As a result, our fundraising cycle and the deployment of our dry powder should significantly expand the firm's earnings power and fee-related earnings over time. How can Blackstone generate these extraordinary results while most other money managers are suffering? We believe it is the power of our brand and our superior performance, which have enabled us to build unique relationships with our clients over decades. We've also benefited from the remarkable trend started over 30 years ago of increasing allocations to alternative managers as investors seek higher sustainable returns, including retail investors, which represent a vast and largely untapped market. Limited partners across customer channels rely on us to produce differentiated outcomes compared to what they can achieve in traditional asset classes. In the second quarter, for example, our flagship strategies again dramatically outperformed the relevant market indices, most notably in real estate and our hedge fund solutions business. In real estate, while the public REIT index fell 17% in the quarter, our core plus funds were up 2.3%. I'll do that again for you. The index is down 17, we were up 2.3. And our opportunistic funds protected capital down only 1%, so we only performed by 16% for our customers over the index. For the first six months of the year, our real estate strategies appreciated 9 to 10% versus a 20% decline in the REIT index, equaling an outperformance of roughly 3,000 basis points. I don't know many asset classes that perform outperform indexes by 3,000 basis points. Meanwhile, in liquids, BAM achieved positive returns again in the second quarter and a 1.8% growth for the first half, outperforming the S&P by 2,200 basis points for the six-month period, and the hedge fund index by nearly 700 basis points. This is exactly what BAM's products are designed to do in down markets. These results, frankly, are stunning compared to the losses most investors are experiencing. What drives our fund's outperformance? 
and allows us to sustain it over time. Our investment process is highly differentiated, including a rigorous focus when choosing the best sectors and assets, always with a priority of protecting capital. And we create value in our investments with our deep portfolio operations and asset management capabilities. We had anticipated higher interest rates and more pervasive inflation for some time. And we positioned the firm's portfolios to reflect that, which John will discuss in more detail. We're seeing the clear benefits of that foresight today, and so are our customers. Looking forward, market conditions will remain challenging. We're cautious on inflation, which we think could stay higher for longer than most expect, and several banks will have to continue responding. It will be a difficult balancing act to combat inflation while trying to minimize the negative impact on economies. Europe is also facing the most severe impacts of the war in Ukraine in terms of dislocations in energy markets and the global food supply. And in Asia, the periodic reassertion of COVID remains a headwind to growth. These conditions, of course, create significant uncertainty for markets. And the critical question is how much has already been incorporated in the broad-based declines that have occurred. It is impossible to know the exact outcome because it depends on future central bank actions. But economic softening, along with corporate margin pressure, will be prevalent. Blackstone is uniquely positioned to navigate these uncertainties on behalf of our investors. We've lived through many cycles in our 36-year history. In each one, we learned a lot and each one reinforced the importance of having long-term committed capital. The vast majority of our AUM today is under long-term contracts or in perpetual structures, helping us avoid the large decreases in AUM experienced by many other money managers in this environment, as we've all seen. Our model also provides us the advantage of patience to buy assets and the flexibility to sell when the time is right. Meanwhile, our portfolio is in excellent shape, having been carefully designed with the current environment in mind. The firm is extremely secure financially, with a market cap today of $120 billion, minimal net debt, and importantly, no insurance liabilities. Our fundraising should allow us to invest large-scale capital at lower prices, providing the basis for substantial realizations in the future. We expect a significant expansion of FRE over the next several years, which Michael will discuss. In conclusion, despite the difficult conditions that come with every central bank tightening cycle, I am extremely confident that Blackstone, as always, will prosper and grow even stronger in the future. And with that, I'll turn it over to John. Thank you, Steve. Good morning, everyone.
Despite the challenging quarter, Blackstone delivered both for our customers and shareholders. And with four powerful engines of growth and record dry powder capital to invest, we are ideally positioned for the road ahead. The foundation of our business remains investment performance. The way we've positioned investor capital over the past several years is driving differentiated returns today, as Steve noted. We've been preparing for an environment of rising rates and a normalization of market multiples for some time. And the facts on the ground across our global portfolio suggested inflation would be higher and more persistent than many believed. These views informed our investing, leading us towards owning floating rate debt, hard assets with shorter duration income streams, and high quality companies with limited exposure to input costs and with pricing power. We also have pursued attractive cyclical opportunities, such as the travel recovery theme, and we did not lose our discipline even as we invested in faster growing sectors, always keeping a sharp focus on profitability. Nowhere are the benefits of our thematic approach more apparent than our, in our $320 billion real estate business, which just reported a record quarter. Performance remains outstanding. The output of our emphasis on sectors where rent growth continues to meaningfully outpace inflation. In logistics and rental housing, our two largest exposures, fundamentals are the strongest we've seen. In logistics, e-commerce tailwinds and corporates moving away from just-in-time inventory have driven vacancy towards all-time low levels. We estimate rental growth in our U.S. and Canadian logistics markets exceeded 40% year over year in the second quarter. And in our U.S. multifamily markets, rents grew 19% based on the most recent data from May. BREIT perfectly exemplifies the strength of our concentrated strategy in these two areas, with estimated year-to-date growth in same-store property net operating income of 16%. In corporate private equity, revenue growth in our portfolio also remained quite strong in the quarter, up 17% year-over-year for our operating companies, which helped offset significant increases in labor and input costs. While we were not immune to the market volatility, we saw strong appreciation in our travel, leisure, and energy holdings. These areas comprise 28% of our corporate private equity business compared to a 5% weighting in the S&P 500. In our credit business, fundamentals remain healthy. Default rates are historically low and our focus on large senior secured loans has led to an average loan to value ratio of just 44% in our U.S. direct lending portfolio with significant borrower equity subordinate to our positions. The value of our assets is further highlighted by our record realization activity in the second quarter. The firm's largest realizations in the quarter and among the largest in our history were the $23 billion recapitalization of last mile logistics platform Mileway and the $5.7 billion sale of the Cosmopolitan Hotel in Las Vegas in two of our favorite secular neighborhoods. Looking forward, volatile markets do mean realizations will likely be muted for some time. However, 
FRE will continue to provide meaningful ballast to earnings during this period. Conversely, market dislocation creates attractive opportunities to deploy, and our enormous dry powder and long-duration fund structures give us the ability to take advantage of these opportunities as they emerge. Turning to our four engines of growth, our customers continue to respond favorably to our performance, and our drawdown fund business could not be in a stronger position today. We launched fundraising for our new global real estate flagship in March, targeting $30.3 billion, which is 50% larger than its predecessor and would represent the largest private equity or real estate private equity drawdown fund ever raised. In only three months, we closed on $24.4 billion with the remaining capacity already fully allocated. Combined with our BREP funds in Europe and Asia, we will have $50 billion of opportunistic real estate capital to deploy globally, only 12% which is invested today. This is a very advantageous position given the current environment. We've also raised $9 billion to date for our new corporate private equity flagship and expect it to be at least as large as the prior fund. Our private equity secondaries flagship is on track to reach its target of approximately $20 billion, the largest secondaries vehicle ever raised. We closed on $3 billion for our new growth equity vehicle and expect to exceed the size of the prior fund here as well. And the list goes on. Overall, we remain highly confident in our $150 billion aggregate target for drawdown strategies. Moving to our institutional perpetual capital platform, which has grown rapidly and now exceeds $100 billion. Our institutional real estate core plus strategy, BPP, is $74 billion across 25 different vehicles, including $8 billion of additional perpetual capital raised in the second quarter for the mileway recapitalization. As a reminder, we have four open-ended institutional BPP strategies focus on North America, Asia, Europe, and the life sciences sector that can continuously raise capital. We also have perpetual closed-end and co-investment vehicles, including Logicor and Mileway in Europe, Stuyvesant Town in New York, Canadian Industrial, Japanese Apartments, and more. Our infrastructure strategy has grown to $30 billion, with an additional $3 billion raised in the second quarter and over $12 billion of inflow since reopening to new capital late last year. Both BPP and our infrastructure platform continue to benefit from their focus on hard assets in great sectors where inflation is further limiting new supply. Turning to retail, sales in the channel were $15.5 billion in the quarter. For our three perpetual products, BREIT, BCRED, and BPIF, sales totaled a robust $11 billion, with an additional $2.4 billion of monthly subscriptions on July 1st. We do offer limited repurchases within these vehicles, which increased in the quarter to $2.9 billion, driven by Asia-based retail investors. As we saw in 2020, retail net flows are impacted in a volatile market environment. But the key, long-term, is that our investment performance for our three perpetual vehicles remains very strong, as does the positioning of their respective portfolios. Looking forward, we have more perpetual products in registration 
and we continue to add distribution partners around the world. Finally, on insurance, our business has more than doubled in the past 12 months to over $150 billion, and we are seeing continued organic flows from our clients, totaling $3 billion year to date. We are focused on delivering for them, and we're also pursuing a variety of additional growth opportunities on a balance sheet light basis. In closing, we have both the staying power and firepower to thrive in this challenging environment as we have for 36 years. Our strategy remains the same as always. We are an asset light, brand heavy investment manager focused on delivering exceptional returns for our clients, which creates both near-term dividends and long-term appreciation for our shareholders. With that, I will turn things over to Michael. Thanks, John, and good morning, everyone. For the past several years, we've been highlighting the continuing expansion and transformation of our AUM and earnings. At our Investor Day in 2018, we first shared the message about a meaningful step up in earnings power, driven by the combination of first, a drawdown fundraising cycle, at the time consisting of five flagships targeting $60 billion, and second, the growing contribution of our perpetual capital platform. Over the subsequent four years, our asset and earnings base and quality have expanded dramatically, powered by these factors. The firm's second quarter results reflected another definitive step on this journey. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the key elements of the forward outlook favorably resemble our setup four years ago, with a new drawdown fund cycle underway and a growing array of perpetual strategies. I'll discuss each of these areas in more detail. Starting with results. The exceptional range of growth engines firing across the firm has continued to propel AUM to new record levels. Management fees grew 28% year over year to a record $1.6 billion in the second quarter and were up 6% sequentially from Q1. Combined with $347 million of fee-related performance revenues in the second quarter, generated by a variety of perpetual vehicles, total fee revenues exceeded $1.9 billion, up 51% year-over-year. Fee-related earnings increased 45% year-over-year to $1 billion, reflecting the strong growth in fee revenues. With respect to FRE margin, as we've stated before, it's most informative to look over multiple quarters given intra-year movements. On a year-to-date basis, FRE margin was 55.1%, in line with the prior comparable period, despite a significant step up in T&E expense from muted levels last year. As we noted then, the COVID-related reduction in T&E spend was a benefit that would eventually reverse. Adjusting for this impact, year-to-date 2022 margins were stable with the full year 2021 as well. For 2022, we expect full-year margin to be approximately in the same 55% area, reflecting expansion of over 200 basis points in two years and 900 basis points in four years. Distributed earnings increased 86% year-over-year to $2.0 billion in the second quarter, or $1.49 per share, driven by strong growth in both FRE and net realizations. Net realizations rose over two and a half fold to a record $1.3 billion, powered by Mileway and the Cosmopolitan. While the overall effect of the current environment will be to slow realizations in the near term, our performance revenue potential continues to build. Invested performance revenue eligible AUM grew 39% year-over-year to record $487 billion. 
Net accrued performance revenues on the balance sheet stand at $7.5 billion, or over $6 per share. While down from a record level in Q1, primarily due to realizations, this store of value is still up 11% year-over-year and is up nearly threefold from the same period two years ago. Turning to the outlook. Similar to the roadmap we provided four years ago, we believe the combination of the firm's latest drawdown fundraising cycle and the ongoing expansion and scaling of our professional capital platform will lead to a structural step-up in the firm's FRE over the next several years. First, our $150 billion target across 18 drawdown funds represents an increase of over 25% compared to their prior vintages. This engine alone should add approximately 20% to FRE as these funds are raised and activated over time. We expect to launch the new $30 billion real estate flagship in early fall with an effective four-month fee holiday for first closers. We will launch other funds at various points over the coming quarters, depending on deployment. At the same time, and alongside the drawdown funds, our perpetual capital platform has expanded dramatically since Investor Day. In the past 12 months alone, Perpetual AUM more than doubled to $356 billion, consisting of 21 strategies across 51 discrete vehicles, with more in development. Most of these vehicles generate recurring fee-related performance revenues, and momentum in this high-quality earnings stream continues to build. Indeed, Perpetual Strategies now comprise 45% of the firm's total performance revenue-eligible AUM in the ground, or $219 billion, reflecting a model that is less and less dependent on asset sales. In the past, we referred to the layering effect of these revenues as crystallization events occur on differing cycles across strategies. In the case of BPP in particular, we expect to see a meaningful step up in fee-related performance revenues in 2023, with four times more BPP AUM subject to crystallization than in 2022. Overall, our perpetual platform, including both institutional and retail strategies, has been a key driver of the firm's evolution towards higher and more recurring earnings, a progression we expect to continue. So in closing, as Blackstone moves into the second half of 2022, despite the many uncertainties in the world, we are highly confident in the future. Our business model is set up to provide extraordinary resiliency in difficult times, as shown throughout our history. At the same time, we have multiple engines of growth driving us forward and are putting in place the foundation for a material step up in FRE. With that, we thank you for joining the call and would like to open it up now for questions. Thank you. Allow me to kindly remind our audience, if you wish to ask a question, please press star one on your device. Please only present one question at a time and then press star one again for any follow-ups. Thank you. And with that, our first question is coming from the line of Michael Cypress from Morgan Stanley. Michael, please proceed. Which we hear is getting a bit tougher, but then when we look at your results, you raised a staggering amount of capital in the quarter. So just curious your perspectives on the broader fundraising backdrop here for the industry. And then how do you expect the balance of the year to play out for Blackstone? And then any additional help you can provide around how to think about the, the fee activations and timing around that into the, for the rest of the year in 23 and what that means for the financial profile. Thank you. 
Thanks, Mike. I would say on the fundraising front, uh, it is getting harder out there. I think there was some prequin or Bain data that was out uh, this last week that showed private equity fundraising in the first half of the year was down 43%. Um, it's particularly tough in North America private equity uh, with institutions. And I think you'll probably hear about more of this from others in the industry, both public and private uh, participants. I think the key, as you saw in the numbers here, and our reaffirmation of our $150 billion target, is that we are in a differentiated spot. Um, it reflects uh, our track record over time, um, the relationships we built with LPs. I mean, to raise a 30-plus billion dollar fund in 90 days um, is pretty staggering. It would be in a good environment, but to do it in an environment where markets are falling sharply is you know, especially uh, impressive. And so what we're seeing with us is we have this very broad platform. We're in secondaries and credit, hedge funds, private equity, um, infrastructure, life sciences. We raise capital around the world, US, Canada, Middle East, Asia, Australia. Um, and we do it, of course, in different channels, not only the institutional channel, but in retail and insurance now. And so I think that gives us an ability to do things uh, that others can't. Um, we would continue to expect we'll raise money. Um, it is a more challenging environment, but I think it will hit some others probably in a more adverse way who don't have as broad a, pl a platform, maybe not the same track record, uh, maybe not the same depth of relationship. So a more challenging environment, and this is where a firm like Blackstone really shines. In terms of the financial, uh, you know, I don't know if there's anything you want to add, Michael. You know, Mike, I referred to how the, the fundraising cycle, um, and there are sort of 20 or so discrete strategies that these vehicles have launched and will continue to launch, you know, over the uh, course of the coming quarters, depending on deployment. And so I mentioned um, the big new BREP Global Fund. We expect it to launch, um, you know, in the early fall, um, subject to, to the standard fee holiday. And then I think uh, beyond that, you'll see, depending on deployment, more funds launching. And I would say in terms of, you'll see a substantial um, you know, impact from that in 2023. And then in terms of full fees from the broader um, sweep of those funds, um, much of that in 2024 we would expect, but again, it's deployment dependent. Great, thank you. Our second question is coming from the London from JP Morgan. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, there seems to be a disconnect in terms of what we're seeing um, and the message we're hearing from management in terms of the resiliency of the business and the perception by investors of this resiliency. So can you help us reconcile this perception divide and what might seem intuitive and logical for investors about the flow through of macro factors through private markets investing and why that's not as bad as they think. And in particular, fee read and fee cred seem to be areas of concern. Do you see net redemptions as possible in coming months? And how are those funds positioned to manage a period of redemptions beyond redemption limits, particularly if they exhaust cash and credit lines? Okay, that is a long question, uh, Ken. I guess I'd start with, um, what we think is a misperception about the business. Um, and it may go back in time to the fact that these businesses used to have a, 
narrower base, were engaged in a relatively small number of activities, uh, and had a small number of customers. And uh, as we've talked about on past calls, we really see ourselves having moved into these much more open waters. Alternatives have gone from being sort of a um, niche business to something that's broadly accepted, that the performance has proven resilient, um, and that has given customers more and more confidence. That's why even different than 0809, customers recognize that this is a great vintage. We said on the call, we expect to raise a private equity fund equal in size. We expect to raise uh, a growth fund, similarly, even larger than the last fund. In previous cycles, investors may have shied away. Now, because of our track record and confidence in the industry, investors recognize this is a compelling time to invest in the space. I'd also point out that the way the business is built, um, we talk about both staying power and firepower. So on the staying power front, we have a firm, Steve articulated, that has virtually no net debt, no insurance liabilities. We are a very well capitalized business for any kind of environment. And then our funds are set up in ways where we're not for sellers of assets. So when we go through periods of dislocation, we're able to ride through them. If you look back at our data over 30 plus years, interestingly, our funds that have been through recessions produce the same multiple of invested capital. It just takes a little longer to get there. And people who've been around the business, I think, understand that. Um, the other factor here that I would point to is we've got all this dry powder. And I think that's gonna to prove to be very advantageous, both in terms of FRE, but taking advantage of a difficult market. And then I would talk about where we've deployed capital. We've been really focused on what we call good neighborhoods. We've been talking to all of you now for 18 months about inflation. And so when you look at our portfolios, they don't necessarily reflect the market overall. So, you know, we've got 28% in private equity and travel and energy. That's different than the market. In real estate, where we have large portion of our portfolio in residential and rental housing and logistics very different than the overall market. In fixed income, our, our um, BXC, our credit business, and our Bread's real estate debt business are heavily oriented, virtually all to floating rate debt, obviously very important. And when you look at some of the products pivoting to, you specifically asked about BREED and BCRED, the fact that they're designed for an inflationary environment gives us a lot of confidence. In the case of BCRED, uh, you've got floating rate debt, so every time the Fed raises rates, returns go higher. In the case of BREIT, you own short-duration hard assets, in that case 80% residential housing and logistics, where the fundamentals are phenomenally strong. Um, I guess I should just comment specifically, the question was about redemption in those two vehicles. Um, I'd say a number of things. First of all, if you look at the data in the quarter, Overall in retail, we had 15 and a half billion of inflows, um, very remarkable. In the three products, primarily BREED and BCRED, but also our European product, BPIF, we had 11 billion of inflows in the quarter. Uh, we did have 3 billion of redemptions or 2.9 billion of redemptions. I would also point out on July 1st, which doesn't show up in the quarterly data, we had another $2.4 billion of inflows. So these are products that have a lot of momentum. Um, I would point out that we operate them with low leverage. 
Um, in the case of uh, B credits, around one to one. In the case of B read, I think as of the latest quarter, it's right at or slightly below 40% leverage. We also run them with significant amounts of liquidity, excess liquidity, to meet uh, our clients' needs over time. And I think it's super, super important to focus on the fact that these portfolios have delivered extraordinary performance. Steve articulated this, but in markets that are down sharply, the fact that Bcred has managed to produce slightly positive performance, Bread I think is up over 7% net this year, that's really exceptional. And again, it goes back to what we own in these portfolios. And, and so being positioned in the right place for a good environment and then having a terrific product to address it, we think is really important. I would also say as a final point in these vehicles, of course, beyond the enormous amounts of liquidity we run them with, we also have structures here again that make sure we never have to be a forced seller. So we've been really thoughtful in designing them, but the thing that gives us the greatest confidence is individual investors are continuing to allocate capital and the performance and the positioning is so strong. Great, thank you so much. Our next question is coming from Alexander Blustein from Goldman Sachs. Please, go ahead. Good morning, thanks. Thanks for taking the question. So, so John, maybe building on the retail theme um, a little bit more here. So you guys have provided a lot of data and evidence uh, that support how large that addressable market is, is for Blackstone. And as you think about the more turbulent market conditions, what do you hear from some of the larger distribution partners, individual financial advisors, et cetera, as they thinking about both the gross sales and potential for, for larger redemptions from some of these vehicles? So because to your point, you know, performance has been extraordinary uh, relative to fixed income markets being down, you know, double digits year to date. So if there are redemptions, what are, what are the main reasons? And B, as you think about launching a lot of new products, you guys have a couple of things in Europe, there's some headlines in Asia. How are you thinking about scaling those products in a more challenging macro backdrop? So, so I would say, Alex, near term, when you have this kind of market volatility, you would expect to see um, net flows to slow. We saw this, by the way, back in 2020. Um, it was a short period, but we saw back then a pretty dramatic decline in net flows, we continued to execute, and of course that turned over time um, the other direction. Um, and of course, if you look at IPO markets or other areas, we've seen much sharper declines relative to what we've experienced here. What, when we talk to our distribution partners, I think what they would say and what we see in our data, and I mentioned most of the repurchases, as we call them, are coming from a, a, a smaller subset of our investors in Asia, um, and and the majority of investors here in the United States have been fairly stable. I would say investors, the feedback are they, they like these products, they like the performance of these products, and that's the reason we're continuing to sell them. If the markets continue to be challenging, then you can expect that it's a more difficult period for net flows. But then again, I go back to we've got products that are well designed with ample liquidity, and then again, you look at the numbers on the ground, and I think this is where it's worthwhile to talk about what's happening. So in, in BRE, we mentioned that um, same store net operating income was up 16% in the quarter. 
Um, that's well above, I think, almost any public uh, real estate company today, and it speaks to the positioning and the geographic positioning as well. Rental growth is even higher um, in these portfolios. And what that allows us to do um, or, or has allowed to happen here is between the dividends we pay and the growth, the multiples have come down um, in terms of the valuation metrics, and yet we've still managed to deliver positive performance. And that's what we're seeing out there, which is incredible performance on the ground. And in Bcred, again, as I said, floating rate will help a lot. So the short answer is in a choppy environment, you could see a tougher retail net flows environment, but you're continuing to see meaningful positive flows. You saw it again at the beginning of July, and we're continuing to see strong performance. And that's what we think will continue to make a big difference. Great, thanks very much. Our next question is coming from Glenn Shore from Evercool ISI. Glenn, please proceed. Hi, <clears throat> I appreciate it, thanks. Um, I guess I just want to drill down on the, the concept that we talked in the past about, about higher rates. And you mentioned the, the clear obvious, it's great to be a lender with lots of floating rate debt when rates are rising, and, and so you benefit from that. <clears throat> I guess the flip side is you invest in companies that are levered, and, and, and so I'm, I'm curious if you can address the positioning of the portfolio uh, and what types of companies, while rates were zero and spreads were so low for so long, rolled with floating rate debt instead of locking in fixed rate? And, and if, uh, if I could, just on the same topic of higher rates, do you think that slows demand for private credit products in general? So I think um, when transaction activity slows, um, you know, that can impact deal volumes in terms of originating private credit, although um, in this environment, the banks have grown more cautious, um, and that's creating an opportunity for private lenders. In terms of our portfolio, it really uh, varies. Um, it's, we've been talking a bunch about B-Read. In that case, virtually all of the debt we fix long-term. We do that similarly in our perpetual vehicles uh, like uh, uh, BPP, we have a lot of fixed rate debt in our infrastructure business as well because these are long-term hold assets. Um, BCP has also been pretty disciplined in fixing out its rate. That's our private equity business. Maybe not quite as much as we do in some of our long-duration um, real estate or infrastructure products. And then I would say in our opportunistic real estate business, we have more floating rate debt. Uh, but again, we're much more lowly leveraged than we were in the past. And so when I look at sort of where our portfolio sits, our leverage, our coverage versus 15 years ago and the stability of the type of assets we own, we feel so much better. And by the way, it's not just us. If you look at the, the, the uh, default rates across the credit world, it's still pretty low. So yes, higher rates will impact the, the net cash flow you have to distribute. Um, and also, of course, has an impact on multiples, and we're seeing that in the marketplace. But overall, we don't see that as being a major uh, issue for our portfolio. Thank you. Our following question is coming from Craig Siegenthaler from Bank of America. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. 
I mean, Craig. Like, my question is on the underlying leverage for B rate, BPP, and B cred. And I appreciate the comments for a one to one for B cred and 40% for B rate, but what type of flexibility do you have in each of these three vehicles to move leverage up or down, especially considering the MA pipeline at both B rate and BPP? So, we have uh, meaningful additional capacity in both of these vehicles uh, in order to obviously meet our investment requirements, but also if there are liquidity requirements, sizable um, excess liquidity. I, I don't know what's disclosed in the documents uh, for these vehicles, but I would just characterize it as, as quite significant. We've created these products recognizing you could go through a more challenging period of time. And so that is definitely not something we view as an issue. Great. Thanks, Greg. Our next question is coming from Robert Lee from KBW. Please proceed. Uh, great. Thanks. Good morning. Thanks for taking my question. I was wondering if it would be possible to maybe get to you know, a little bit more meat on the bone, so to speak, for the, your FRE uh, expectations. Um, I know you called out the fundraising cycle adding maybe, I think it was 20% alone to FRE from, I'm assuming that's current run rates, but could you maybe break that down? Like, if you have, how would you think of it from base, base fees versus fee-related performance revenues and then um, then the, I guess a long while, maybe to 2018, since you updated some kind of growth targets. So, uh, uh, any willingness to kind of update what you think is possible in the next, say, three, five years? Thanks, Rob. It's Michael. Um, I think you heard it right uh, a 20% increase from basically run rate FRE levels, which includes management fees and also fee related performance revenues. So, but that 20% is coming from just the management fee effect and contribution to FRE overall. So the numerators, the management fee uplift to FRE from this cycle of flagship drawdown fundraising relative to the current run rate FRE base. And that's obviously an estimate, but we feel pretty good about it over the, over the coming years. And then I, I would just, um, without putting more numbers to it, um, go back to what I said in my remarks, which is I think certain, certainly qualitatively as we look at it and in terms of sort of the mix of it, um, there are parallels to the position we're in, which is very favorable as it relates to uplift from, from the cycle of fundraising and also perpetual capital, both in terms of growth in the base, and then also we've talked about over time sort of this, the, the layering and, and seasoning effect, if you will, of platforms, including institutional perpetual platforms in BPP and BIP. And for programs like in BPP's case, which are now six, seven years old, where those uh, uh, free-related performance revenues mostly have a three-year anniversary, you're starting to see those sort of cycle through, you know, um, for a second and third time. So you'll see the benefit of that in the coming years. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Moving on to our next question from Brian Bedell from Deutsche Bank. Please, go ahead. Great, thanks. Good morning, folks. Um, maybe I'll just focus on that last point on the on the uh, performance, fee-related performance on uh, BREAT and, and the BPP um, performance. Just on BREAT to start. Um, so I think the net return was um, two point, a little over two percent in the 
second quarter, but you're making your bids on the gross return, I believe. So maybe, John, if you could just talk about um, the, the, the yield component of that and the return profile of that um, and your optimism on that yield increasing, obviously, as, a, as, a, um, as something that would be attractive for retail investors. And then, Michael, uh, just um, if you could talk a little bit more about the BPP platform, the crystallization timing, what assets are related to that for that three-year anniversary? I assume that's, that's excluding BREED. Yeah. So, so on the on the B read outlook, um, what I would say is, um, it goes back to these really remarkable fundamentals, the best we've seen in logistics and rental housing in our history. That should power strong performance, even as multiples come down, as cap rates move up. Something we've already done materially at this point, and there could be more of that over time. But we have such strong fundamental growth combined with the dividend yield today, which is four and a half percent. And that's what's produced this strong performance. That's what gives us confidence about the future. Um, yeah, and, and just to reinforce that, Brian, so uh, just stepping out, B-Read, basically high single digit gross appreciation, total return, and that's comprised of that four and a half percent mid single digit cash yield and then appreciation. Um, I think in terms of the uh, BPP uh, uh, incentive fees, um, both currently and then next year, they're spread across you know different vehicles and strategies. So whether it's BPP US, BPP Europe strategies, Coinvest strategies, BPP Asia, you saw contributions from each of those um, this quarter. That'll continue um, in the coming quarters, and then next year um, you have more of that, and you also have the uh, life sciences um, BPP vehicle that we created a couple years ago that will have an anniversary in terms of its uh, its fee next year, which will be meaningful. Thank you. Our following question comes from Patrick DeWitt from Autonomous Research. Patrick, please proceed. Uh, thanks, good morning, everyone. Uh, this press report out suggesting that you and some of the other big private credit managers are dialing back on risk and direct speak to that dynamic and, should, and through that lens, should we expect a meaningful pullback in credit deployment? And on the other hand, is there a potential offset from, you know, maybe? I think we lost. Okay. I think uh, in terms of private credit, I would just point out that in the second quarter, uh, we committed to seven transactions with a billion dollars or more. Um, the biggest one was, I believe, the Zendex public to private in the software space. So we had an extremely active quarter. Um, that being said, obviously, um, there has been a change in the market. It allows you to be more selective on which types of credits. It allows you to diversify a little bit more. Um, and so I think it speaks to there being significant opportunity. But obviously, we're going to pick our spots. Um, but in general, I think as a lender in this kind of environment, and not only applies um, to our private credit business on you know uh, these kind of direct lending uh, positions, but also in insurance, you can lend at lower loan to values and higher spreads. So it's a good time to be a lender. We fortunately, between our our BXC business, our breads business, our insurance business, we have a lot of scale in this area. So we're enthused about the opportunity to lend money to provide credit to borrowers. 
but yes, you can be selective in who you choose, where you choose to deploy capital, and also get both favorable economic and contract terms in this kind of environment. Thanks, Patrick. Next question, please. Moving, moving to our next question from Finian Ashia from Wells Fargo Securities. Please proceed. Uh, hi, everyone. Thank you. Can you talk about the uh, market volatility's expected impact on on private deal activity? What sort of a magnitude of, of a drop off we might see, and and in terms of how long it might last? Is there starting to um, is the buyer seller disconnect perhaps on valuation starting to thaw out? You know we have seen a decline, no surprise. Uh, whenever you have moments of, of dislocation, as I keep saying, of of you know uh, equity markets, debt markets trading off, you have uh, banks who at these moments sometimes uh, have inventory that they will take them time to move. You see this slow down and you see buyers and sellers sort of resetting their expectations. Um, you know, we saw it in 2020 when it was very short, um, lasted six weeks. You know, in the most extreme example in 08, 09, uh, you know, it was 15 months or something. You know, we're not, I don't think, in either of those conditions. And we're still seeing deals getting done. Uh, we did a number of things in private equity. We bought a business at VARA which is in the life science space doing compliance testing. Um, we bought a business, Geosyntech, which is an environmental consulting firm. Um, and so there still is activity, but the way it happens is things slow down, you know, people find sort of a, a moment, you know, sort of a floor and then business builds back up. I think in this environment, until there's a little more confidence around the trajectory on inflation, I think we'll see slower volumes. Once people get a sense that inflation is turning down more, they'll have a clearer path. Um, and so I would expect the back half of the year will be slower because um, I think it'll take a little time and then things will pick back up. Going back to our model, the good news is, you know, we don't have to deploy the capital. We can be patient. We can wait for the right moment. The best opportunities today are clearly in the public markets on the screen, and that's where we're spending a lot of time. Then there'll be people who need capital um, or want to sell a division. And then sort of private to private transactions will probably pick up over that time. So we've seen these cycles over time. Deal volume will pick back up, but I would expect it probably to be slow in the back half of the year. Thank you. Moving on to our next question from Brian McKenna from JMP Securities. Please proceed. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see the strong fundraising to date for Brett 10 and then to hear uh, the $30 billion target. When I look at the last few vintages of this product, the fund sizes have stepped up quite meaningfully. So can you talk about how you think about expanding the size of these funds over time, and then also how you think about capping these funds relative to the market opportunity? Yeah, we've been very disciplined over time. I mean, if you really look um, across the BREP franchises you mentioned, um, 30 billion is a step up, but but it's grown from, uh, I guess, low double digits just before the, the crisis, the financial crisis. Um, and, and we see the marketplace, if you look at asset value growth in, in commercial real estate, I don't think we've grown faster than that on, on a relative basis. 
as you know, where we've seen big growth, of course, has been in our perpetual products, Incor Plus, uh, both institutionally and retail, which is an even larger market. But what excites us, of course, and I think excited our investors, is uh, what's going to happen potentially. You see it in the public markets. There could be people who face financial challenges. And having a large-scale fund that doesn't require financing commitments allows us to do big things. And, you know, we recently committed to buy a last-mile logistics business, actually closed this week, uh, PS Business Parks, that's in some of the best geographies in the U.S., with incredibly strong fundamentals. And because of our scale, we were able to step up. So I guess what I would say is we're very thoughtful in the size of the capital. We've been asked this question now for 30 plus years. If you look at the BREP global track record, it's 17 net since inception. Investors have a lot of confidence in us. And it's a similar story across our firm. We scale the capital in these drawdown funds relative to the opportunity and performance is what matters. We're continuing to deliver that and investors continue to respond. Yeah. Our next question comes from Adam Beattie from UBS. Go ahead. Uh, good morning, thank you for squeezing me in. Uh, question on expenses and margins are probably from Michael. Um, just how we should think about the non-comp uh, expense growth going forward. How far along do you think we are in terms of a post-pandemic uplift on that line and, and getting back to a more normal run rate. Um, and then quickly, if I could, just on the FRE uplift from the fundraising, are you assuming like a higher incremental margin there or just run rate margin such that some margin expansion might be upside? Thanks a lot. Sure, Adam. I think on the second question, we're not um, that approximately 20% doesn't rely on margin expansion, although over the long term, we'd obviously continue to expect operating leverage and margin expansion and larger funds have that effect. Um, in terms of your first question on um, operating expense, yeah, for sure, um, this was a, um, uh, in, in T&E, and we you know, sort of made this call a year ago. I think we said a year ago it explained about 100 basis points or so of margin impact, and that's exactly what happened. And even though we felt like we were pretty much back to work a year ago, if you look at um, the T&E spend uh, you know, across the firm as our teams really mobilized and, and investors gathered again and so forth, um, it was a significant uplift, even relative to pre-COVID levels, versus pretty pretty minimal spend a year ago. So I would expect that to sort of cycle through over the next couple quarters and then normalize um, in the year after that. Um, and I think overall, if you look at the full year, you know, the second half of the year, I think the rate of increase um, in OPEX, you know, will decline as we roll over some, you know, lumpier first half comparisons. Thanks for the detail. Appreciate it. Up, we have Jerry O'Hara from Jeff Beeks. Please go ahead. Great, thanks. <clears throat> Perhaps maybe we could uh, just touch on the secondaries market briefly. Clearly, strong performance in the quarter, up over you know five and a half percent. But if you might be able to just comment a little bit on some of the drivers and, and outlook for this business, and then uh, I guess this is maybe a, a, a bit of a, a longer term question, but. Do the, do the dynamics and, and the sort of construct of the, of the secondaries fund lend itself to any sort of retail opportunity in the future, just given, given the liquidity or closer liquidity that it, it could potentially afford? Thank you. Uh, good question. So on the performance front, uh, there is a little bit of a lag there. So because you're reporting from underlying managers as opposed to reporting directly from Blackstone, you've got a quarter or so lag. So 
those were very good results, but obviously we'll expect next quarter they'll reflect what's happening in the private equity market today. In terms of drivers in the business, um, they're really outstanding. Uh, if you think about how dramatically the alternative space has grown, and yet how little capital is in this secondary space to provide liquidity, um, there is a serious mismatch there. And then when you add to that the number of firms who can buy across the several thousand uh, different managers out there, that's even more limited. So we think about this as a special business that will continue to scale over time, that there's a structural inefficiency in the business um, because there's this need for liquidity. I would say on the deal flow front, um, again, what's going to happen now is investors will probably pause LPs in terms of selling, um, and there'll probably be a period where some markdowns will come through. Then we'll see sales pick up again. Um, and many investors, one of the flip side positives, and this is why the firm having sort of the diversity we have is so important. One of the positives here is the over allocation to private equity that makes fundraising more challenging for many firms means that those same institutions are now thinking more and more about selling in secondary. So we think having a $20 billion fund in that space uh, is going to be very compelling. We have smaller funds in infrastructure and real estate, but that is really a long-term uh, growth engine for our firm. Oh, and on retail, I do think there's opportunity. I think the diversity of it, the liquidity, the shorter duration, um, that is a product potentially part of something broader uh, that could be a, a meaningful addition. And again, it's another one of the factors that's the strength of our firm. And I, I guess I would just say, you know, there was, we've talked generally about the environment and everybody's focused on, you know, this month quarter. I, I just cannot emphasize enough the strength of our brand and what it allows us to do to create new retail products, to do things in insurance on a capital light basis, our ability to still fundraise institutionally despite the challenging environment. You see it in that number, $88 billion. I think you'll continue to see it over time in our results. Okay, thank you. Our next question is coming from Orno Giblet from BNPP Exchange. Please go ahead. Um, yeah, good morning. Um, so my, my question is on BRITA. Um, if I understand well, the biggest component of performance um, over the past uh, six months, 12 months has been uh, rental growth. I'm just uh, wondering what the outlook there um, is. I, I, I've heard you that you're in good neighborhoods, etc. But I'm just w wondering how, how much more scope you have to, to, to put up rents um, in the context of rising rates and, uh, and uh, inflation and, and, and a squeeze of consumer. Thank yeah. You. It's a good question. Um, obviously, at some point, the very high rates of rental growth will come down, but, but the backdrop is incredibly constructive. You start with, um, in our two main asset classes here, residential uh, and logistics, record low vacancies, which is different typically than when you're going into a down cycle. In addition to that, what you're seeing is, particularly on the residential side, a pretty rapid slowing of new construction. New home starts were down 20% here in the last couple months because obviously the for sale market, the cost of construction goes up and also financing costs, mortgage costs uh, have gone up really materially. And so people still have to live somewhere. And so what's happening of course is you're seeing less new supply, 
we already have a very big structural shortage and that's pushing more people into the rental market. So that provides a lot of support. I would also point out as history, if you went back to the 1978 to 82 period, the last period of really high inflation in the US, CPI averaged 9% back then. Rental housing, apartment rents grew at 9% and new construction declined by 50%. So I think um, investors haven't fully appreciated the value of hard assets in this kind of climate. And then on the logistics side, what I would say there is um, we're still seeing this shift to e-commerce. The importance of owning last mile logistics keeps going up. And then this redundancy desire of companies who are concerned about supply chain and the need to hold more inventory closer to home, that's creating real demand there too. And so we see strength there as well. So surprisingly, despite a lot of the headwinds, these are probably two of the best um, sectors in the entire economy around the world. Thanks, Arnulf. Next question, please, Ben. Our next question is coming from Rufus Ho from BMO. Rufus, please proceed. Right. good morning. Thanks very much. I wanted to ask about the potential you're seeing for insurance deals in the current environment and how has your deal pipeline evolved? And I was wondering whether the rise in interest rates and higher volatility has had any impact on the appetite you're seeing for transactions. Well, we are seeing um, insurance companies, I think, increasingly recognizing that having the capability to originate private credit is very important. And particularly in this environment, you know, when the banks um, get more full on inventory and slow their originations, that makes it more challenging for folks who buy uh, just liquid, widely distributed products. And if you have the capability in this environment to make corporate loans, real estate loans, infrastructure loans, asset-backed loans, that is a real competitive advantage. I think insurers are also seeing the strong performance of our insurance clients. We have three meaningful insurance clients, but also other insurers uh, tied to alternative asset managers. That private credit allows them to earn incremental yield without taking on incremental risk. So we're seeing an industry that is beginning to recognize that this is a powerful tool to generate better returns for policyholders. We are in um, discussions with multiple parties, as we've talked about over time. You know, we don't know when these things hit or not, but what we do have is this very powerful origination engine and a model where we can serve multiple insurance clients and that gives us the ability to grow in this area. So my expectation is over time, I don't know when, we'll come back and find other sizable clients and continue to grow this area. There's really a natural partnership between us and major insurance companies looking for incremental yield. Next question comes from Patrick DeWitt. Promote Research. Patrick, please proceed. Hey, thanks for following. Um, Fan uh, had great performance, as you highlighted, but the flows remain pretty anemic. Are you starting to see a shift, maybe in, 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 in pipeline demand building there? As it seems like we're, we're entering a longer term period where that strategy should be more attractive. 
You know, I, I think it, it takes time. We've been through a period where equity markets and fixed income markets were so good that the idea that um, you would invest in, in a product where your downside was protected um, and you could produce solid returns, um, you know, sort of regardless of market movements, that wasn't really valued. And what I would say is, um, after these two quarters, I think clients are going to begin to recognize this, but it does take a bit of time. Um, we're also working on some new products in that area that we're not going to talk about today, but we think could help give some growth. But, you know, really, um, flows follow performance. That's how it works. And so in the BAM business, showing just how powerfully we can protect capital in an adverse environment, um, I think that will resonate. I think we will grow, but it doesn't necessarily happen overnight. Our final question comes from Brian Bedell from Deutsche Bank. Please proceed. Great. Thanks for taking my follow-up. Uh, maybe just on the, the growth angle on the retail side, I, I think you mentioned um, you're continuing to focus on expanding those distribution partners. Can you talk about um, which, which areas in particular? I know you're already very well penetrated in the wirehouses, um, and I believe the private banks, but maybe there's a lot more to go there. But um, maybe talk about that and, and also the, you know, the very large RIA market in the U.S. And, and also um, outside of the U.S., I, I believe there's an effort in Asia in particular. And, and whether this can all be done with existing products or um, does it rely outside the U.S. on creating new retail products? So I think we're at a very early stage uh, when you look at, even within the wirehouses, when, when you say at the largest firms we're, we're well penetrated, we're still only with a minority, a small minority of the overall financial advisors in these systems. Um, in the RIA channel, uh, our penetration is very low. In the smaller IBD channel, that's also low. In Europe and Asia, Europe, there are all sorts of um, regulatory and filing requirements, which we are steadily working our way through. Um, Japan is a market that could have real scale. Um, I would say we are much closer to the beginning of this journey, not only with these initial products, but also with the future products. And the customers are just experiencing these for the first time. If you went back in time 30 years ago, to the alternative space and you were talking to an institution about private equity, it seems sort of new and exotic. Steve could comment on this, but, but we're now in a very different place today. And today, institutions have 30% of their capital in private markets. Um, I think individual investors, I don't know if it'll go that far, but from the low single digits they're in, I think it can move meaningfully. Again, this is where our brand and performance makes a huge difference. And so we're investing a lot in building out our capabilities. And I think over time, we'll have more distribution partners and many more financial advisors and clients within these systems. Thank you. Great. Thanks, uh, thanks Brian. Thank ben, ben, before we... I'd like to hand it back to invest in Tucker for closing remarks. Great. Thanks, Ben. And Steve, I think you uh, had some, some, some remarks you wanted to make. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been quiet today because it's always fun to watch John and Michael uh, answer uh, questions. Uh, but there was a an unanswered piece, I think, of um, the J.P. Morgan question about, which was very well 
phrased, what's the disconnect between what you as management think and, and sort of what we're seeing on the screen, which is not such a happy day here. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you a story just to start out. Uh, I was someplace on Sunday and somebody walked up to me uh, and he said, I, I'm a, a, a B-read investor. In fact, it's the biggest thing in my portfolio. And I love you people. This is so amazing. All of my friends are losing a fortune in the markets and I've been making money. This is a simple story. I've been listening to the B-read discussion and John's laid out our wares pretty well, I think. Uh, but, but the reason we have optimism, uh, where apparently that's not broadly shared, uh, is, is that we're providing enormous value to people who are investors who remember it uh, and they appreciate the firm that builds our brand that helps us raise money it helps us do our function uh, which is to underwrite risk and, and put really good products out uh, unlike you know other other people who, who where that isn't the case uh, and we're doing it throughout uh, our asset classes it's really exciting to be able to outperform markets uh, by thousands uh, of percent and if you don't think that's a reason for optimism uh, then I find that odd uh, and you know I think that's a base that we will be building upon uh, I was at one retail thing where, where we talked about if everybody put 100% of their portfolio in BREIT, they'd be the best performing broker in that large system. Uh, and, and, and so we, we take a lot of pride in what we do and we do it carefully. Uh, and, and we've had really good results in, in terms of other reasons for disconnect. Uh, we sit with distributors who, who say to us, I, I want you to be hugely bigger uh, in my system. Uh, and, and they say, um, um, you know, when they say that, they have the ability to do it. it it's not a hope. Uh, these things are going to happen. Uh, and, and so I, I think we have a, a, a sense uh, of the future that uh, obviously isn't shared by the, the market today, uh, but I've been through this a lot of times. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, we prevail. Uh, and I, I don't think there's a reason to be, you know, um, uh, particularly concerned about the long term, uh, because in the long term, we also have an amazing group of people uh, at the firm, truly astonishing group of people. Uh, and that's how you build a business. And, and so when I, I ended my remarks and said, I thought, you know, we're going to really do well over time. Uh, I, I didn't just do that as a throwaway line. Uh, and um, I, I think we have a, a terrific positioning. I think it's unique uh, in the financial world. Uh, and we're going to build on it. 
and it's going to work out fine for everybody. Uh, so I just wanted to end on that uh, because you know, I realize there's a lot of individual uh, questions, but when you step back uh, and look at what's happening here, $88 billion in a quarter, I mean, there are giant mutual fund complexes that are hemorrhaging. We're not hemorrhaging. I mean, it, there's, a, there's a reason to have some balance uh, here. We're going up in, in terms of our AUM, not like other famous companies that seem to go down. Uh, so so I, I think if you unbundle, you know, what, what you're thinking uh, and, and step back and look what's going to happen in our business over time, uh, I think there is enormous uh, reason for um, uh, optimism as to what we will be building uh, at Blackstone and providing for all of our customers. So I apologize for that little speech, but I honestly believe it, and I wish you would. Thank you, Steve. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining us this morning, and look forward to following up after the call.